Well, hey guys, I want to go ahead and ask you guys to go ahead and turn to John chapter 12. We're going to be really in John chapter, John chapter 12 and 13 today, starting in 1236 and then going through 13 verse 20. And I'm really excited to be going through the study of John this semester. As we've seen last semester, if you were a part of the, the, really the Love Divine series, it was the first 10 or so chapters of John. And now we're in this, this semester going to be finishing out the book of John. But what we're going to be doing now is focusing a lot really on the last two weeks of Jesus' life and the, event that, and the events that led up to that, whether it was Lazarus last week or ultimately in his, his death on the cross, his resurrection, and his ascension. But this week specifically, we are going to be in John chapter 12, and we're going to be looking at why Jesus, or why Jesus came, really, and he came to be a servant. He came to serve. As we see in Matthew 20, Jesus says, he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so I'm going to pray for us and we can go ahead and jump on in. Lord, thank you for today, God. Thank you for your word. Lord, we, we know that you are amazing and you're worthy of our praise. And I, I pray, Lord, that um, today you would, you would speak through me. And Lord, nothing that comes out of my mouth is, I pray that none of it's my words, but it is all yours. And um, Lord, I pray that you would just, open our eyes, open our hearts and our ears to what you have to say um, as we dive into the Gospel of John. In your name we pray, amen. Okay, so what I want to first start off by doing is recapping where we left off last week. So if you remember, last week, Ken walked us through a, a significant portion of John 11 and 12, but towards the end, we kind of got to the triumphal entry. And we see that Jesus is surrounded by this crowd, and he's coming with this crowd from Bethany. And he's walking into Jerusalem, and he's, he's on a donkey, and we see that the Jewish people are shouting Hosanna. They're praising him, and they're doing this because they know that a prophecy is being fulfilled. Ken pointed out to us that the, these Jews, they were good Jews. They understood the scriptures. They studied the scriptures, and they, they knew, and honestly, had a lot of it memorized. So they knew that these prophecies were being fulfilled when they saw the, they saw Jesus riding in on a donkey. They knew that that was a prophecy being fulfilled, that this was the Messiah. And everyone was believing in him. And Ken posed this question that I think a lot of us have tried to ask ourselves over the years, and that's this crowd, especially at the beginning of the week, the, the triumphal entry, they're laying palm branches down. You know, we call it Palm Sunday every year. They're worshiping him. Why the all, all of a sudden switch the the going from worshiping him and praising him to being the very ones that put him on the cross. So what happened there? Why, why did that happen? And I think what we realize is the kingdom that they thought Jesus was coming to establish was not the kingdom that Jesus was, was coming to establish. They thought he was going to be this military ruler. They thought he was going to free them from Roman rule and that he was going to sit on a throne and essentially not allow any other outside nation or anybody else to rule over them. He was going to be that ruler for them. And as we see, that's not the kingdom that Jesus came to establish, and so this angers them. But for the time being, he's, he's following, or he's walking into Jerusalem, and there's this crowd from Bethany. And we know when they were in Bethany, he was with Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. And we saw that people were believing in him. And it even says here that everyone was believing him. In John chapter 12, 19, the Pharisees just kind of throw their hands up in the air and they say, look, the world has gone after him. And this angers them because what it does is essentially they're, 
they're following, their standing in society is being hurt because people are following after Jesus. So what do they do? They begin to plan and establish a plan to put Jesus to death. And as we learned in the Gospel of John, that they were trying to put Lazarus to death as well, because it says that through the testimony of Lazarus, of what Jesus did through Lazarus and to Lazarus and Lazarus and raising him from the dead, the people were coming to know the Lord. People were coming to believe in Jesus. But something that I think Ken did a really good job of bringing to our attention was in in Jesus' mind, as he was riding through the town on that donkey, as he was fulfilling this prophecy of saying that I am the Messiah, he knew what was going to happen on the other end. He knew what was going to happen on the other end of the week. You see, Jesus knew of the pain and knew of the suffering that he was going to have to endure on the cross. And I mean, I can think of a million adjectives that really try to put into perspective what, was, what he was going to go through. He was going to have he was going to go through an excruciatingly painful death in such a way that is probably one of the most vile ways to ever be put to death, come up with by humans. And, and so this is what Jesus was going to go through. But the joy comes in this. Is he knew what was going to happen on the other side. He knew through his crucifixion on the cross, death and Satan would be defeated. No longer would sin no longer would death hold us. Those things, those, sh- those shackles would no longer hold us. They would no longer keep us down. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus would defeat those things. On top of that, God's wrath would be justified. As I've been preparing for this, this is something that I just don't know how to put into words because it is, because it is something that I, I can talk to you uh, and describe the excruciating pain that Jesus goes through from a physical standpoint, but I cannot begin to imagine what it was like to take the full wrath of God and have it be put on himself. God's wrath would be satisfied. Jesus' death on the cross would satisfy the wrath of God and no longer would we have to atone for our sins. Jesus would atone for our sins. But ultimately, the free gift of God's redemption was going to be revealed to us. It was going to be made available to us. And if we believe in him, as we'll see later on here in uh, John chapter 12, what a life with him is like. So we're going to go ahead and jump on in because we've got a lot of ground to cover today. But that's kind of the background that we have uh, with where Ken left off last week and where we're going this week. So we see that the Pharisees had, as it said in 1219, they'd thrown their hands up. Look, the whole world has gone to him. So they, they were frustrated. They, they knew that they were, there were people believing in Jesus. So what did they do? They, they began to devise this plan. And so Jesus is in Jerusalem now, and he's beginning to perform signs and wonders. It says that he had left the crowd. He, he had gone into the crowd from Bethany. He left the crowd and he stepped back. But among them, he had performed many signs and wonders. Now, we don't know exactly what these signs and wonders are. I mean, we can assume, talking about really out of chapter 11, the raising of Lazarus from the dead, or just really looking at any of the signs and wonders that Jesus performed, the miracles that he performed in his life. But here it just says that he performed many signs and wonders among them. But here's the kicker. The crowd was starting to not believe in him. So I think this is where we're starting to see that shift of, they were worshiping him as he, had came in, as he was coming into the city, but now they weren't believing him, even though he'd performed many signs and wonders. So we're going to pick up in John 12, 36, and this is what it says. 
John tells us, when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before him, they still did not believe in him. Now, what we're going to see happen here is something that John has done quite a bit throughout his gospel. He points back to a prophecy being fulfilled, and that's exactly what's happening here. John points to Isaiah 53, which he quotes here in the next verse. And for us, it's John 12, 38, but really it's, a, it's John quoting Isaiah 53. It says, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? You see, the people didn't believe after seeing so many signs and so many wonders. And I think John adds that emphasis on purpose. Jesus performed so many of these signs and wonders, yet they were refusing to believe. But this isn't the first time that we've really seen Jesus accuse a crowd of only seeking signs and wonders. John uh, chapter 4, verse 48, this is a story where Jesus, he heals this, this man's daughter. And after he heals her, he turns to the father and says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And so he's, he's standing there and he's accusing this man of the only reason you're believing is because you see signs and wonders. And if you don't see them, you're not going to believe. And so that's what this crowd was doing is they were even seeing signs and wonders and not believing. And what this is, is a rejection of Jesus. And if you take the 30,000 foot view and take a step back and you look at it from a larger scale, they were rejecting Jesus and we knew this was going to happen. From the very beginning, John in his gospel and John 1:11 says, speaking of Jesus, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. And then again, the verse that I just read, John 12, 37 says, though he had done so many signs before him, they still did not believe in him. This, this next passage is kind of a, a, another way of furthering that point. And I want to go into this because I think it really shows us the heart of Jesus when it comes to our faith. So this passage I'm gonna read comes from John 20, and it's dealing with the, the disciple Thomas. Thomas is known by his nickname, Doubting Thomas. And he gets this nickname because he says after Jesus, well, he doesn't really believe that Jesus was resurrected. He says, I'm only going to believe it unless I can see the scars on Jesus's hands, the scars and the holes in Jesus's hands. And so this passage is actually that moment where Jesus and Thomas are standing face to face and Thomas can see those scars from his hands. So Thomas says to Jesus, he says, my Lord and my God, And Jesus answers him and says to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen yet have believed. I think this is a wonderful picture into the heart of Jesus when it comes to faith. And what I mean by that is what Jesus is saying here and what he wants the crowd that's around him and the people that he's speaking to and speaking of, what he wants them to understand is your faith shouldn't be contingent upon something else. Your faith shouldn't be contingent upon a sign and a wonder or a miracle that Jesus does. Jesus says right here, blessed are those who have not seen yet believe. That is what true faith is. And that's what Jesus is wanting these people to see. But we know that they're not. And they're, it, they're choosing darkness over light. Now, we've seen this verbiage many times, really in the past couple of weeks, but all throughout the gospel of John of choosing darkness or light and our hiding in our sin um, in the dark where Jesus describes himself as the light of the world. 
you know, last, or last week and the week before that, Ken kind of made a reference to Star Wars, and I consider myself kind of a Star Wars nerd. And so when I think of this, the language of light and dark, I think of, you know, the light side with the good guys, the Jedi, and the dark side, where obviously they are evil and they are the bad guys. And so I think it's really a universal symbol, but it, it's just another way for us to see that these people were choosing darkness. Now, what I want to do is I want to point us back to the story of Nicodemus here, because I think John uses the words of Jesus in the story of Nicodemus to really show us what it means, really the difference between light and darkness and how these people were choosing darkness. Jesus speaks to Nicodemus and says, God's light came into the world, but people loved the darkness more than the light. So they're choosing the darkness over the light. They're loving darkness more. They're loving their sin more than they are the light of the world. For their actions were evil. All who do evil hate the light and refuse to go near it for fear that their sins will be exposed. So what this crowd is doing is they're hiding in their sin. What's easy to do in the dark, right? You can't see anything. It's easy to hide. It's easy to stay hidden. And along with that, it's easy to hide our sins. And so that's what Jesus is, and John is wanting to make the point. That this crowd is choosing the darkness over light. They are choosing to stay in the darkness rather than run to the light of the world. Now, what's interesting is the next point that John really makes for us is he tells us that they can't believe because their hearts were hardened. This is something that I want you guys to discuss in your groups because it's, it's kind of a hard topic to wrestle with, that God would harden their hearts and really they wouldn't be allowed to leave or allowed to believe. And John points back to another prophecy in Isaiah. This one's in Isaiah 6, but he shows us that there wasn't a sign or a wonder that Jesus could do that was going to make them believe. It was inevitable that these people would reject Jesus. And the thing that sometimes is, that I want, really I want you guys to wrestle with is, this is the handiwork of God. This is something that God is going to use to bring himself glory. But that's, I want you guys to talk about that and see how through the hardening of these people's heart and their rejection of Jesus, God is glorified. But we've also seen this before, right? We, we've seen God harden the hearts of other people throughout Scripture. And the, I think the most common one that comes to mind is found in Exodus. Exodus is the story of Moses and Aaron bringing the Israelites out of Egypt, out of slavery in Egypt, and into the wilderness. But before he's brought them out, God hardens Pharaoh's heart. It tells us in Exodus 9, 12, But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. And so I think we see that God has done this before, but this next quote actually comes from your devotionary. And all of you have it, and you can go read it for yourselves, but I wanted to pull it out and show it to you here because I think it does a great job of really showing us what is happening here. I think that Ken does a wonderful job of explaining it. He says, their disbelief, speaking of the crowd, preordained by God, was part of his redemptive plan. It was essential that Jesus be rejected and ultimately crucified because his death was absolutely necessary if mankind was to have any hope of escaping future judgment. So we see here that this rejection by the Jewish people, by this crowd, was inevitable. It was preordained by God. Why? Because if they don't reject Jesus, then Jesus doesn't go to the cross. And if Jesus doesn't go to the cross, we have no hope. 
You see here, by rejecting Jesus, Jesus goes to the cross and dies on the cross for our sins. He dies in our place. And that, that is what's happening here. And that's why John is showing us that this prophecy is being fulfilled. And these people were rejecting Jesus, ultimately to send him to the cross so that we might have hope, that we might have life through him. But because of this, we're going to see that this crowd is going to continue to disbelieve, right? If it was preordained by God that they were going to reject him, they're going to continue to disbelieve. They're going to continue not to believe, even amongst all these signs and wonders and miracles that Jesus had performed. They could not believe that Jesus was offering a way of being made right. You see, they were, as we'll see, were more concerned with their standing before man. They were more concerned with having a right standing before man than having a right standing before God. And I think Jesus, what we'll see here in just a second is he's going to cry out. He wants them so badly to understand that what they're believing isn't true, that they, they want to have a right standing with man more than God. They want to follow the law and that satisfies the separation between them and God for their sin. But that simply isn't the case. So we see here that Jesus around this crowd is going to cry out. He's going to scream. Now in the past when I've taught, I've, I've kind of gone into passages like this where we see it says Jesus cried out. And I think so often we skip over those things. We don't really read into it the emotion that Jesus was speaking with there. So Jesus desperately wants everyone to hear what he's saying. And the, the Greek word there for cries out is kratio. Now, the literal translation of this is the cry or a shriek of a raven to exclaim, to entreat. So when you read this verse, what I want you to picture is that ear piercing sound. And that, that is what, like what makes you like squirm, what makes you like shrivel up. That is the emotion that Jesus is screaming with. He wants our attention. He wants the crowd's attention. And he wants them to know what a life with him is like. And so if Jesus is speaking at this level, we have to ask ourselves, okay, what does he want us to know? He wants us to know what a life with him is like. So what is a life with him like? These next three verses I'm going to read come from the story of Nicodemus, but I think it works perfectly because Nicodemus is asking Jesus himself, what must he do to be saved? What must he do to have eternal life? So here's what a life with Jesus is like. John 3:15. whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Very next verse, probably the most well-known verse in the Bible, John 3, 16. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. So what do we see here? We see a life with Christ. You're going to have eternal life. You're not going to perish. And guys, my favorite is you don't stand condemned anymore. As I've been preparing for this teaching, I have been brought to tears over this verse. Because I read that, and here's what that means, is no longer, if you believe in Christ, if you have a life, new life through Christ, no longer does God look down on you and see you in your sin, in your filth. What he does is he sees you, or he looks down and sees his son. That's what it means to not stand condemned. No longer does he look at you and see your sin, your sin but he looks at you and sees his son. So continuing on, John 6, what else does a life with Christ look like? Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now this isn't a 
physical hunger or physical thirst. Now, God does provide for us. God is the great provider, but here he's speaking of spiritual, uh, in a spiritual sense. You're not going to hunger or thirst in a spiritual sense. And then John 11, this comes from last week. This is the story of Lazarus. Jesus says, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. A life with Christ here is, on this side of eternity, it's inevitable. We're, we're going to die. But through Christ, we have life and we have eternal life. So we've seen all these things that this is what a life with Christ is like. And so Jesus is going to go on in John 12, verse 44. He says, the one who believes in me believes not in me, but him who sent me. And the one who sees me sees him who sent me. This goes back to John 7, or really all of John, Jesus, we see Jesus saying, God sent me. We've talked a lot the past couple of weeks about the hypostatic union. And that is Jesus and God are one. And Jesus has been repeating this over and over and over again. And what he's wanting us to understand is that expressing belief in him is also expressing belief in God because it's God who sent him. This is something that really was the first thing that raised a red flag in the Pharisees' minds when it came to Jesus claiming to be the Son of God, claiming to be the Messiah, because to them that was heresy, that you could not claim to be the Son of God. You couldn't claim to be sent by God. And so that we see here is something that Jesus continues to, to say. And even days before his death, he is saying, God sent me. And he's trying to get us to understand that Jesus and God are one. Now, I don't think it's a coincidence that John places this verse really immediately after he tells us about a group in the crowd and really even among the rulers, the religious elite, that there was a group of them that believed, but because they were scared to confess this belief, they kept it to themselves. They were scared of the Pharisees. It says in John 12, 42, many did believe in him, even among the rulers, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him so that they would not be banned from the synagogue. You see, the crowds here were more fear, fearful of man than they were of God, or they were more fearful of man, so that kept them from expressing belief in Jesus, in the Messiah, in the Son of God. And they would rather have a right standing with man than a right standing with God. A large part of their disbelief comes from they failed to see the unity, as Jesus has been saying here, between God and himself. They are one. Jesus and God are one. And to see Jesus is to see God. You see, in this moment, Jesus is boldly declaring his identity as the son of God. He is boldly exclaiming, entreating. He is yelling that he is the son of God. And it is God who sent him. Now we know that God sent him. And so the question that we logically have to come to next is why did Jesus come? Why did Jesus come to earth? And I think he answers that in John 12, 46, he says, I've come into the world as light. And again, pointing back to the light and the darkness. I've come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. You see, these people need to understand that they were living in spiritual darkness. They were choosing the light over, or they were choosing the darkness over light. Their sin is what separated them from God and here, here's what they believed. As I said earlier, they believed that they could satisfy that sin by living up to the law. 
by living up to the law that they see in the New Testament. They believed if they followed all those rules, that would satisfy the separation, separation between them and God from their sin. Now, I know I'm new to staff, and a lot of y'all don't know me as well, especially coming on staff during the middle of COVID. But I want to take a second and be vulnerable with y'all. And I want y'all to know a part of my story that that is how I lived for a long time. And I praise God every day for bringing me out of that thinking. But I thought to myself, okay, if I sin, mess up, whatever, if I just read my Bible X amount of times a day, or if I pray X amount of times, like I am good, that I have satisfied that separation between me and God. And I started getting into an even darker and darker place because what I realized is I was totally depraved. I, in my natural state, I am sinful. And I began to see that, okay, I sinned again. I messed up. I failed. So I just need to pray more. I need to pray more. I need to pray more. And it kept up the, the amount of times that I would have to do these things or whatever it was, praying, reading my Bible, confessing, whatever. Like I had to do it more and more and more until I eventually started thinking, there's no more grace left for me. There's no more mercy left for me. This line of thinking that this crowd was following is incredibly destructive and that's what happened to me. And like I said, I praise the Lord for bringing me out of that because there were moments where I didn't even want to get out of bed because I knew that I was so sinful and I was in such a dark place that there wasn't enough grace for me. And I think in that moment, I started to realize that, man, this passage, Jesus crying out and saying, this is what a life with me is like if you would just believe is something that I needed to hear. And that's where I got to. I, I started to understand that, man, living up to the law isn't what, or isn't what satisfies that separation. And honestly, a quick survey of scripture would reveal that to us. Paul, writing to the Galatians, says, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. And then again, Paul writing to the church in Rome says, for no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. I mean, guys, this is, it's, it's pretty just basically right there that the law is there to show us how sinful we are and that we are in need of a savior. And so I think that answers our question of why did Jesus come? It's he came into the world not to show us our sin, but to save us from our sin and to cleanse us from our sins. And I think after I came to realize that, I started to see that, man, as I said earlier, I no longer stand condemned before God. If I believe in his life, death, resurrection, and then his ascension, if I believe in those things, Jesus or God no longer looks down on me and sees my sin, sees my filth, and sees my just utter depravity, but he sees his son. He sees the sacrifice that his son did it on the cross for our sins. And so I think as we see here, Jesus did not come into the world to show us our sin, but to cleanse us from our sin and save us from our sins and forgive us of our sins. And he goes on in John 12, 47, and he says, of, like speaking to believers, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge them. And I want to read that again because I think it's important for us to see that. He says, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him because he did not come into this world to judge he says, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world from their sins. Save the world from our sins. Now, what's really cool about this, uh, about Jesus exclaiming this and telling us this is we get to see that it's 
not just something that he pulled out of a hat, right? It's coming straight from God because, right, remember the hypostatic union, Jesus and God are one. Jesus is getting this command from God. They're not his own. They are from God. And he points this out in the very next verse. He says, for I have not spoken on my own authority, speaking, Jesus saying, I have not said these things on my own authority, but the father who sent me, again, showing that Jesus sent him, himself has given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that this commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the father has told me. So we see here that Jesus is understanding that he came to save the world, not to judge it. He came to save the world from their sin and offer you new life through Christ. He came as a servant. As we've talked about, Matthew 20 says that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so in the next passage we're going to jump into is John chapter 13. And in this story, we're going to see Jesus really living out and showing us a perfect example of what it looks like to humbly serve, but then also in that act of service pointing to the cross. So this is a a, a really well-known story, right? Jesus is washing the disciples' feet. But what I want to do is offer you guys some context. So at this point, Jesus knew that his hour was near. He knew that his death was coming. We saw in John 11, we saw in John 12. And all really throughout John, he is predicted and shown that his death would come. And we've got to the point where he knows it's near. And so what's he doing? He's, he's at a supper with the disciples. Now through context, we know that this is the last supper. We've seen in other gospels and we see here in John that this is the last supper. But John, the gospel of John is actually the only one that includes the washing of the disciples' feet. And so we know through Matthew, Mark, and Luke and other things that are happening around this time that this was the Last Supper and all of the disciples are there. In fact, John tells us that all the disciples are there. But he does something interesting that I think he's, he's done last week whenever we were going through the story of Lazarus and also in weeks prior. But he lets us into the mind of Judas. He shows us and tells us that Judas is there. Now, John, at the beginning of John chapter 13, tells us that the disciples are all there, but he really, throughout the story, only tells us that Judas is there and Peter is there. Like, he focuses on those two. And we'll see Peter is, we, we see Peter there because, like always, Peter usually puts his foot in his mouth when he speaks up too quickly. But we'll also see that it's important to know that Judas was there. Judas, it says that the, the thought to betray him had been implanted to, uh, to portray Jesus as had been implanted into his heart. He hadn't done it yet, but the thought was there. And Jesus already knew this. And so with that in mind, let's go into John chapter 13, verse three. He says, or it says, Jesus, knowing that the father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. I'll come back to this in a minute, but I really want us to remember the, the whole act of Jesus laying aside his outer garments and how that's going to be another subtle way of Jesus pointing to the cross. So he laid aside his outer garments and took a towel and then laid it and tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. Now some cultural context for you guys is this. The washing of feet was typically done by a servant. 
it was typically a low job. It wasn't something that somebody in high society was going to do. This was the job of a servant. This was not just a regular thing that somebody would do. And knowing that Jesus visibly and purposefully puts himself in the position of a servant to wash his disciples' feet, right? The, the roads were dirty. They didn't have paved roads back then. So their, their feet were sandy, dusty, dirty, all of them. So they needed to have their feet washed. And as they were reclining, Jesus puts himself in the form of a servant. As we see in Philippians 2, he came as the form of a servant and washed their feet. He willingly does this and he willingly washes the feet of the disciples. But this is why I think John includes the fact that Judas was there. Because in this moment, what we see is Jesus washes all the disciples' feet, which means that he washed the feet of Judas, the man who was going to betray him and ultimately hand him over to the men who would put him on the cross. Jesus still, knowing that was going to happen, got in a lowly position, got down before Judas and still washed his feet. And I think it's just a beautiful representation of what Jesus says in Matthew 20, where he says, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is such a beautiful picture. And I think it's one that we need to just sear into our minds of the son of man, the, the son of God, the Messiah, wash the feet of the very man who was going to betray him. And I think it's just a beautiful picture of God's love for us. And I think it's something that I want you guys to talk about in your groups of what, what does that mean for us today? But we know that more is going on here, right? We know that Jesus was trying to get them to see more than just him simply washing their feet. When I talked about the laying down of his outer garments or really just his, his, you know, his tunic. It's really interesting to see here that the Greek word for laid down is the same one that John uses elsewhere throughout his gospel, except elsewhere he uses it to describe the laying down of one's life. John 13, 38, Jesus is asking Peter, he says, will you lay down your life for me? In John 10, 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And so what's happening here is Jesus, the imagery of Jesus laying down his life is playing itself out at the Last Supper. But what we're seeing is the disciples don't understand what's happening. They're, they're confused. And ultimately, Peter refuses to let Jesus wash his feet. And he does this because he's embarrassed for Jesus. He, he, he looks at the position that Jesus has gotten himself into and he says, look, that is a job for somebody who is low. That is the job for a servant. You are the son of God. I believe you to be the Messiah. This is not something you should be doing. And so he says, no, I'm not going to let you wash my feet because I, I'm embarrassed for you, Jesus. You shouldn't be in this position. But Jesus' response to this is very telling. I think we need to look into it. He says in John 13, 8, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Now, obviously, Jesus wasn't simply talking about washing feet. Now, the disciples were struggling with trying to figure out what he was saying, but he's, he was talking about washing in a spiritual sense. Let's go back to the story of Nicodemus again and look when he, he talked about, or Jesus talked to him about being born again or being born from above. This was a spiritual cleansing, a spiritual cleansing of sin. 
This is what Jesus is talking about. He says, if I do not wash you, you cannot take part in me. This, this being born again, the spiritual uh, cleansing, this washing is what Jesus is referring to here. But again, Peter doesn't understand. And as we've talked about before, Peter typically puts his foot in his mouth when it comes to these kinds of things. But honestly, the disciples would be really hard pressed to understand what's happening here. And it's because the Holy Spirit hasn't descended yet. And they would gain understanding through the lens of the Holy Spirit after Christ resurrects and ascends into heaven and the Holy Spirit descends. They would understand what's happening. And they would understand what's happening. And we know that they do because John is writing his gospel well after any of these events have happened. He's writing this gospel years later, and we're seeing that he sees and he understands that this is what Jesus was trying to get us to see. Jesus was trying to get us to see that he came to serve. He came to cleanse us from our sin. He came to forgive us from our sin. He's acting that out here uh, with the disciples. Now, in this moment, Jesus knows that they are struggling to understand what he's saying. And so what he essentially tells them to do is follow my example. So picking up in John 13, 13, he says, you call me teacher and Lord and you're right for so I am. If I then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. You see, Jesus was providing the disciples with a perfect description of what his coming death on the cross was going to mean. He was showing them what his coming death on the cross was. It was him in just an incredibly humble act of service, laying his life down for you and me, laying his life down for those who believe in him. In that moment, he was going to relinquish his divine rights and humbly sacrifice his life. As I've been thinking through this point, it reminds me of Philippians 2, where Paul is trying to make the same point about the life of Jesus and his, his crucifixion and sacrifice for us. Of Jesus, uh, Paul says, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So you see, as I've said earlier, Jesus came, Jesus stepped down from heaven in the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, came in human form and was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, there's this song, this worship song that my wife and I have listened to before and the chorus goes, I loved you before I knew, you knew it was love. And this is speaking as Jesus. He loved us before we knew it was love. And then the next thing makes me cry every time. He says, I saw it all, still I chose the cross. Jesus saw all of our sin. Jesus saw all of our filth, yet he still chose to go to the cross for you and me. And if we believe in him, everything that we talked about from John 3 and John 6 and John 11, that is what a life with him is like. And that is what we have. And no longer does God look down on you and see your sin. He looks down on you and sees his son. And so if, if Jesus is explaining all of this to his disciples through his action and saying, hey, follow my example, the question now becomes for us, how do we follow Jesus' example? What do we do with the example that Jesus has set? And so most likely the disciples didn't understand what was happening. And like we said, it would be hard for them to understand 
But they also didn't understand what was going to happen in a few days' time. Jesus was going to go to the cross. And so he calls them to follow his example of being a servant. Picking up in John 13, 16, Jesus says, I tell you the truth. Slaves are not greater than their master, nor is the messenger more important than the one who sends the message. Now that you know these things, God will bless you for doing them. So I think the important thing here is Jesus is saying, follow my example of being a servant. And also in this passage, he's saying, there is no room for pride or arrogance in the kingdom of heaven. Nobody is greater than anybody else. No, nobody should be greater. And Jesus perfectly displays this by taking the form of a servant, not only taking the form of a servant and being crucified on the cross for our sins, but also in this story in John 13, Jesus gets in the position of a servant and washes the disciples' feet, washes the very feet of the man who was going to betray him. And this is what Jesus is saying. We should follow his example in service. And so to wrap all of this up, Jesus really returns to the same message that he's been screaming this whole time. But as we see here in John 12, he says, I tell you the truth. Anyone who welcomes my messenger is welcoming me. And anyone who welcomes me is welcoming the father who sent me. Again, Jesus is saying, God has sent me. Me and God are one. I am the son of God. I am the Messiah. And he wants us so badly to believe in him. He wants us so badly to believe in him that he is screaming it from the top of his lungs. So through all of this, Jesus is showing us that he did not come to serve, but he came, or he did not come to be served, but he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so I want us to think about that as we go into these discussion questions. And remember from the very beginning, I want you guys to discuss what it meant that Jesus hardened the hearts of the crowd, but through that he was ultimately glorified. What does that mean for us? What hope does that give us? And so along with that, the first question is, discuss what kind of things keep us from following Jesus' example of selfless, sacrificial service to others? What kind of things prevent us from serving others as he did? I think this is a really good introspective question for us to ask ourselves of what are the things in our life that prohibit us from serving others? What are the things in our life that stop us from taking the form of a servant and serving others and humbly serving others as we've seen in the example of Jesus? The second question is, what is significant about the fact that Jesus washed the feet of Judas, the very one who was going to betray him? And what can we learn from his example? Guys, like I said, this is such a powerful image that the very man who was going to betray Jesus and hand him over to the people who put him on the cross, knowing all of that, knowing that Jesus, or Judas betraying Jesus was going to put him in an extremely, excruciatingly painful situation, Jesus still washed his feet. What does that mean for us? What hope does that give us? And lastly, discuss what it meant for Jesus to assume the position of a servant in order to wash the disciples' feet. How should his example apply to us in everyday life? Guys, I'm gonna pray for us and you guys can jump into your discussions. Father, you are good. Lord, you are worthy to be praised. Lord, thank you so much for your word and just teaching us through it. I pray that anything that's come out of my mouth today, that was my words. I pray that you would just throw that away. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us and uh, in our discussion times and speak to us as we read your word. Father, thank you for sending your son to die on the cross for our sins and sending him to be a servant. Lord, I pray that we would learn from that example and that we would apply that in our lives. And Lord, we would truly 
know what it means to humbly serve others as we look to you as our example. Father, keep us safe this week as we go throughout the week, and I pray that we are constantly reminded of your gospel. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Thank you, guys. We'll see you next week.